I'm ready. Let's do it. Welcome, everyone, to episode 243 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor. And for this episode, we welcome Carl Alvarez to the show. I had Carl on years ago promoting the Inside Metal documentary series. And we do talk a little bit about that. But Carl always fascinated me with his social media posts because he was essentially posting pictures of being with a lot of really important uh, people from the music industry, uh, some actors and things like that. And it always fascinated me. It was like, how do you end up doing this? You know, because I wasn't fully aware of what his job was outside of being one of the guys that helped put Inside Metal together. So I've always wanted to have him on. And we worked for a few months to get this done because... I thought his story would be interesting. And again, all about stories here and finding out about behind the scenes stuff and just talking about the love of music with different people. I hope that you guys enjoy these types of conversations. And just remember that you can always drop me a line. There are links to all the social media, all the pertinent social media anyway, platforms right there on MarsAttacksRadio.com. Pick the one you like the best and just drop me a line. Let me know what you think. I, well, if you're one of my patrons, you know, I take your feedback seriously. I always do with, with my patrons, whenever they suggest things, I take them into consideration. And a lot of times I end up implementing the things that they discuss. So if there's anything that you guys truly don't like, like, just let me know. Uh, I value that kind of feedback just to know that what I'm doing with the show is right. So speaking of shows, I just posted my first Mars Attacks radio show on Anchor, which is part of Spotify. It is essentially a 20-minute show with music, actually. I've been yearning to incorporate music into what I do. So uh, this is kind of a pilot episode to see what kind of feedback I would get from everyone. And if people enjoy it, then it's something that I'm going to continue to do. I don't know if I'll do it once a month or maybe twice a month. We'll see. We'll see um, where things go. But uh, yeah, so far, so good. Uh, If you're a Spotify subscriber, you get the full songs. If you're not, it's just 30 second clips. I'll be posting all that information to Mars Attacks Radio shortly once I get all the RSS stuff sorted out. I submitted to Apple and. It should be done shortly. And let's see. Also, just remember every Friday, Signals from Mars, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, 11 p.m. in the UK. We have Samuel from the Swedish band Manimal coming up on Wednesday the 20th, an hour earlier, actually. Uh, But uh, the following two Fridays will be Drew Fortier of The Lucid, who I featured during today's new releases uh, post. And then the following week, it is Ron Scalzo and Chris Penny of Return to Earth will be joining us for the Signals from Mars. Uh, You can chime in, ask questions, so on and so forth. Uh, It is a great, great atmosphere. So please join us for that, won't you? 
I also want to give a shout out to all my patrons who are usually in the chat when I do those live streams. So here we go. Let's go oldest to newest. We have Twisted Steve Hoker, who will be joining me tonight. Jeremy Weltman. We have Mike Jones. Brad Dahl from Yarg Metal. Mark Striegel from Talking Metal. The Metal Dentist, Gabriel Ruiz. Chris Vaglio from The Chris and Amanda Show. Jose from Connecticut. We have Jerry from Long Island, Metal Dan, and up in Sweden, we have Johan, the Metal Chef. Uh, we did lose one patron. Hopefully he will be back. At least that's what he did tell me when he had to bow out. In any event, speaking of my patrons, here we have Jeremy Weltman with his always great patrons pick. Let's see what he has for us this week. Here's Jeremy Weltman with patrons pick. Hello everyone, another week has gone by and it's time for yet another Patrons Pick. This is the slot where I pick out one of my favourites of the week uh, and hopefully you're going to like it too. On Victor's site this week on MarsAttacksRadio.com he has listed uh, no fewer than 19 new releases. That includes the one he's reviewed by Trivium, which is well worth a listen. There is one EP, one live album, two compilations... And there are eight reissues, including no fewer than four from Cannibal Corpse. Of the new releases this week, there were several that were really quite interesting. Um, there was nothing that really stood out and shouted at me, except for the patron's pit, which we'll come to in a minute. But of the, of the, the others, there was Bad Habit Sweden with Autonomy, which I thought was quite interesting. Gus, the Gus G instrumental album, really enjoyed listening to that while I was working Possibly not something that I was going to go ahead and buy simply because it was um, a lot of instrumental stuff, but it's certainly good background music. I actually liked the Wayward Sons album. Now, that's going to come as a bit of a shock to fellow patrons because we kind of didn't really like uh, all of the songs. There was a couple that Victor put up on the site during the, during the last week or so, and we weren't enthusing about it. But when you hear the album in, in, in its entirety, it's actually not a bad album at all, and I think it's going to be a bit of a grower. So that was quite surprising. The other uh, album, or two albums, there was the Jeff Scott Soto album, uh, the Duets Collection Volume 1. That's really good in, in so much as you can dip into it because it's uh, a solo done with a different singer on each song. Uh, then obviously you can, you can pick out your favourites from that and, and just listen to those. And then there was another French band this week, the second in two weeks, uh, with some melodic punk this time from Night Watchers, and that was quite a um, quite an enjoyable album too. Patrons' pick this week is going to come as no surprise to my fellow patrons. It's going to come as no surprise to Victor, really. Uh, it's Wired by Eclipse. This is top-notch melodic rock from Sweden, as far as I'm concerned. I really like this album as soon as I heard it. It's got good hooks. It's got great melodies. It's got choruses. I'd say it's the best melodic album since Heat 2 was released, which I think was last year. Uh, this is their ninth studio album, if you discount one, which was re-released. There are 11 tracks on the album. It's just over 41 minutes long. And I think that all the songs on this are really, really good. It's been getting some good reviews as you go around uh, other sites. Some of it does sound a, li a little bit like Scorpions. I think Eric Mortensen, I think that's how you pronounce his name, and I do need to get it right because we do have a Swedish chap in our um, Patreon group. Um, uh, 
he he does sound a little bit like Klaus Mein, uh, and and the couple of songs sound as if they could be on the Unbreakable album by Scorpions. Uh, for instance, if you listen to Run for Cover, you'll hear that. And if you listen to the song Twilight, um, I had to even look at my uh, look at my iPad and actually uh, check that I wasn't listening to the Scorpions. It was very similar. In fact, I think they're going to give the Scorpions a, a little bit of run for the money because they're going to have to really um, raise their game anyway when they bring out their next album next year, uh, given what they, they brought out um, previously. So uh, I really like this album. Very enjoyable, melodic rock. All filler, no killer. This week's Patriots pick is Wired by a Clip. Whoa, was that a Freudian slip? All filler and no killer. Oh my lord. <laughs> That kind of stuff has happened to me before as well. You kind of tongue-tied and you're excited to get something done and then you mix what you're saying up. But that's cool. I get, I get what Jeremy's coming from or I get where he's coming from. See, I can slip up myself. Um, no surprise. I knew that would be right up his alley and obviously it was. So there you go. Awesome. In any event, uh, we're going to be moving on to the... Carl Alvarez portion of the show. Uh, I edited out the first half hour or so of the episode. If you still want to hear that or see it, you can find that on YouTube. But uh, yeah, just for continuity purposes, I cut out up until he gets settled. And I hope you guys enjoy this. It was fun. First of all, I want to welcome you to the show, and I thank you for joining us. Um, I hope that you are doing well, um, and it is great to speak to you once again. Um, obviously, what's always, you know, kind of grabbed me since I became friends of yours on social media was all these great pictures that you would post with with people from over the years. Um, of you working behind the scenes with the labels and with different things. And it's one of these things where, Oh shit, look who Carl's with in that picture. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, well, there's Snoop Dogg where there's this person, there's that person, you know, there's, it's, it's awesome. Like the IOMI plaque you have there. So, um, how did you get involved in working in the music industry? Oh, well, it kind of goes way back to, um, I'll try to make it brief because it, it's a long line of things that happen. So basically, when I was in college, I got an internship at Enigma Records, 1987. Okay. So if we remember Enigma Records at the time, they were kind of the home of Striper. Poison had got signed through there, but by then I think they were going through Capital. Right. them. So, um, and they distributed Metal Blade Records. So okay. basically all the Slayer stuff, all the, um, I worked out of the El Segundo office. So basically from there, I kind of just like, it was an intern and I branched off from there. I left there after my internship was over and I worked for, uh, I have to explain this back in the day, they had distributors. Right. Now, 
the big record companies that you could buy direct, but you had to maintain a certain credit line. Mm-hmm. And for the mom and pop stores, they basically said, well, you can't go direct with us. We're Warner Brothers. You have to go to a distributor in your area. And this mm-hmm. is where you get your product because they buy from us. So okay. basically, we have all the product, basically. So I was like a sales rep for one of the chain stores out here in Southern California for, for warehouse. But I worked for an independent company. So they would their warehouse is like third partying their product from us. They're also getting it direct from the distributors too, because they're mm-hmm. big stuff. But in certain cases, some things they can't get, so they would get it through us. And we housed everything, basically all the independent labels, all the major labels. So basically, this was like right at the time when the CD was exploding. Right. And we always had sales reps coming in. We always had artists coming in. It was just nonstop and it was at a growth peak. Um, and so I always had an opportunity to meet people. They would come down to the office, they would have lunch with us and they'd do the spiel. Oh, here's the new record. And sometimes the West Coast rep would come out from the label and do the whole spiel and stuff. So it was constantly, we had different artists that come came into our offices and stuff. So I basically did that for probably two or three years. And then I went into buying. I was a buyer for that particular, it was for Abbey Road distributors. They were in, in Santa Ana, California, which is part of Orange County. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows what California and how California is positioned. Right. So, yeah, so it was a great opportunity, a great time. What was also happening too, since we dealt with all the major labels and we were a very important account for, for the whole distribution independent distribution system in southern california the the labor reps would come in and they would kind of figure out okay here's a guy that likes hard rock and metal here's a guy that likes hip-hop here's the guy that likes alternative and it came to a point where like oh there's an album release party for um trying to think what was um Oh, Metal Church is doing a thing at the country club and they're going to do a meet and greet and have pizza before the show. And then it would always turn out to be me. You know, like I was <laughs> that metal guy. So I was the only metal guy there. So like I got to go to all these kind of cool parties and stuff and hang cool. out. And that's probably where you like, you see a lot of the, the, the pictures from um, right. when Scorpions, uh, I don't know if it was Savage Amusement or the other one after they had a big party and I get back to the time when the CD was just like exploding. It mm-hmm. seemed like the record labels had cash. There was always like, you go to these parties and it was always open bar food. They'd be playing the records, um, you know, and they would be inviting all the key industry people, whether it be press, retail, radio, everybody was there culminating. And it was like, it was, it was, and everybody, everybody was there, all the key people you would think of. And especially in L.A., all this stuff happened up in L.A. And just, I don't know, the word got out and everybody was there. So you would find, like that Scorpions party, I mean, beside the Scorpions that were there, uh, Lita Ford was there, all the guys in Motorhead. And you're just hanging out with these people. And it's like, it's like nothing, you know. <laughs> it was a crazy time. In, in in LA, it was just, it was really happening, really happening. And it was like every week there'd be something or oh, wow. every uh, two times a week, 
uh, sometimes going to uh, these parties at different clubs that were around town, you know, um, really quite, quite, quite an experience. Um, I don't think it's happening as much anymore or, mm-hmm. or it's more in the upper echelons now, you know, back then it seemed like everybody could kind of participate and kind of show up to yeah. these deals. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I gave you the long version of what I did and it continues on after that, but maybe for our audience here that's kind of maybe what people would like to talk about you know that 80s 90s kind of thing that was happening in southern california well we th- we honestly talk about all types of you know hard rock and metal we had ryan j downey on last week for example who um he was in a band then he manages bands now he does he's done work over the years with a lot of different publications. So to me, it's always interesting to hear where everyone's coming from and where their kind of musical journey comes from and where that's taken them to, you know, we have people that, for example, are in the chat who are, who are in England and uh, we have others that are, you know, grew up in California like yourself and are now in other parts of the country. And it's always cool to hear about, you know, different stories, how, for example, we did a discussion on Judas Priest and, you know, how someone interpreted Judas Priest in the UK was different to how I got to learn about them, you know, living on the East Coast to what it was like. You know, we have Brad, who's in the uh, in the chat here, who grew up in L.A. So he got to see them, you know, at the whiskey and got to see them, you know, at all these different clubs over the years. And so it's to me, it's always cool to listen to all these stories. So that's awesome to hear. All that definitely before. I mean, we talk a little bit about this. The industry. I was yeah. a fan, obviously, too. And Southern right. California was just. I don't know. Did you grow up out here, or were you on the East Coast? I was on the East Coast. Yeah, I grew up um, about forty minutes outside of New York. Okay, so you got a good taste of all the bands rolling through, whether Lemoore's or Madison Square Garden, and everything in between. I would imagine too. Yeah, unfortunately, by the time I was of age to like go to shows and whatnot, Lemoore's was done. You know, it was, uh, yeah, um, of course, you know, I was I was a 12 year old kid listening to uh, Eddie Trunk on my uh, clock radio. You know, it was, it was funny because he would just come on for five minutes every Friday night initially and just give the metal news. So for a, a music nerd like myself who was reading through magazines and stuff to hear someone talk about the music that I loved was a big deal. So I would just wait up every Friday till midnight to hear him talk about all these different things. Well, you know, who was at Lemoore's, what rumors were going on, stuff like that, you know, Lemoore's and various other clubs that were throughout the New York and New Jersey area that no longer exist, unfortunately. But um, yeah. So, I mean, I'd, I'd get to hear a lot of interviews from bands and, I'd hear them talk up about, you know, all the bands that were coming through. So, and we were also lucky to have um, WSOU in New Jersey, which is probably the biggest proponent for hard rock and metal at a college level. Uh, At least it has been for as far as I've, you know, as far as I've remembered the station. So there were a lot of bands that I got turned on to as a result of that station. Um, so I was lucky that in my area, I was able to find out about a lot of these other bands, whether I was able to see them or not. So, Well, there was a big explosion probably when you were growing up of 
just every major label, every independent label had some sort of metal happening, you know, yeah. just yeah. Kind of out of the woodwork <laughs> nonstop, you know? So I, that's kind of what maybe a little reason why I started to work in the retail side. And I wasn't in retail. It was kind of what they call like a one-stop. So it's just like a big place full of music product, basically. Mm-hmm. And I would see all the new releases roll in on Thursday and Friday. So I got a good feel of what was coming out all the time. It was just, and there was a lot of releases and a lot of bands rolling through and shows and places to play. Right. It was a different time and different place, but plentiful, very plentiful. Were there any bands that you saw based on what releases were coming out that you thought were going to be huge that never got there? Mm, that's really hard to say. I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, you know, the woulda, shoulda, coulda. I, I don't <laughs> remember very well. Okay. Uh, maybe I'll come to mine a little bit later. Uh, okay, right. sure. No problem. There, uh, there usually was always a big push on certain things, though. I remember the band Giant. They right, came right. In. Great. I mean, uh, Mr. Huff, the guitarist. Yeah, Dan Huff, yeah. Dan Huff. He's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, by the, the, the looks of things, you know, like they had all their – boxes checked as far as kind of being played on radio musicality and you know they came down and it was kind of a big push and stuff and it just didn't get traction you know for whatever it is for whatever reasons are yeah, yeah he probably made a bigger name for himself as as a producer he produced some megadeth stuff and then i believe he did quite a bit of writing behind the scenes for other bands as well yeah. so that's a shame how some of that stuff works out where you know, there's a band that's getting this huge push. You're like, wow, this is going to be the next big thing. And then after an album or two, it just, unfortunately, you know, there isn't a market or not a big enough market for, you know, labels to allow them to stay afloat, I guess, especially during that time where the internet wasn't around, where bands could continue to release stuff digitally or, you know, or just have bands buy things or excuse me, fans buy things directly from the bands like they do now. You know, a band like that too, they're just they're just expertise on their instruments. It's like right. you can like bad English, you know, or hardline, you know, these guys well bad English it probably like total pros, they're coming together, managed by Howard Kaufman, they're getting in all the good tours with White Snake and you know, it's it there's there's marketing dollars, bands just kind of split apart and you know, they just throw the noodle on the wall, see if it sticks, you know. Right. And uh, you saw a lot of that, too, that was happening at that time, too, you know. Right. Yeah, Brad in the chat is saying that XYZ should have been bigger. (laughs) Ah, yes. I went to a Foundations Forum, and the lead singer, he was on the panel. And I think at that time they were pushing that second record, maybe, by then? I can't remember. This is 90, Foundations Forum. And I think the first record was produced by Don Dawkin, and I guess that they had a little bit of a non-mutual agreement on how the materials should be recorded and stuff. So, you know, and Enigma too, they were kind of going through some rocky times financially at that time too. So, right. But that's a good example of what it should have, could have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Enigma was also tied into, wasn't it GWR was another label? Yeah, they were, 
I believe an English label that was distributed through Enigma. So they had Motorhead. Right. I want to say, did they have Hawk, like some Hawkwind releases? Maybe. I think they released uh, a Fastway album, possibly yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it was another reason, you know, the financial problems that Enigma was happening at, at that time, you know. And then yeah. I think they bit off more than they could chew, you know. Smart Smart people. People. The Hind the Hein brothers were they're geniuses, you know, both right. Wesley and Bill. I mean, two polar opposites, if I ever seen any <laughs> polar opposites, but uh Bill Hein is uh, like a smart business guy, but very creative too, you know. He thinks creatively. He seeks he sees creativity in people. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's he's kind of that person. And Wesley was more the dynamic person, the face, the guy that, you know, brought you in and you know, sure. got you some cookies and coffee and then you know he was that person so between the both of them they kind of did some pre- pretty cool things in a short amount of time gotcha yeah i know towards the end of enigma they were also um working with vinnie vincent there were all these rumors that uh, they were trying to work out a deal with him mm-hmm. uh, so i mean but that was i guess at the tail end of enigma's lifespan so that kind of never came to fruition yeah I think they kept the Restless label, which is always like the independent side of Enigma. And they kept that going for a little bit longer. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was a slimmed down version of Enigma, but, um, you know, that was existing out there, too. But at, that had already always kind of been independent, mm-hmm. the independent, independent arm of, of Enigma. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, getting back to the parties. Um, at what point did you feel comfortable? going to them because obviously you're showing up there all these like big stars around you was there ever a point where you looked to your left and right and thought what am i doing here (laughs) uh no by that time it seemed to be the norm really okay Um, i think the first party i went to was at the capitol tower in the recording studio downstairs okay and i want to say it was god i can't remember who it was for and it wasn't, I, I met Tommy Thayer was, was there and I knew Tommy Thayer from back in the Troubadour days and the Black and Blue album had just been released, the last one that they did with Geffen and stuff. So mm-hmm. I talked to him for a little bit and stuff, but I, I can't remember who the artist was having. It was a hard rock party though, for sure, I, I remember. <laughs> so that seemed to just be the norm and then another party would happen and another party and then and it would just go on and on. And and everybody was in LA, so you'd see a lot of the same people too in the industry that would be there as well. So, um, yeah, I didn't really feel like I was. It's it's you seem to be part of the mix with everybody, so it didn't seem okay. to be like these are these are our people, and then those are the people. Up, you know, I remember later on. Okay, I'll tell you this. I went to Gene Simmons, Gene Simmons album release party. Okay. It was at the key club. This is way later. And, you know, and they made it sound like it was going to be a party. And it was like, everybody was downstairs and Bill Maher, Gene Simmons, Tommy Thayer, they were in the exclusive area. And (laughs) by that time I knew the game was over, you know, it's like, okay, there's them and then there's us. We're in right. the party. We're inside. We're getting a free drink, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah. 
before it wasn't like that. That we were right. all commingling together, you know. Was there ever anyone that you ran into that kind of left you starstruck? I was always trying to meet John Sykes, right? Okay. Always trying to meet John Sykes. I mean, he's my guitar hero. I mean, I play guitar. I mean, what are you going to do? That's, and he lives right. in L.A. And he's kind of like a unicorn. You you can spot him sometimes, but most of the time you can't. Right. Uh, so I remember when the Blue Murder Party happened, when the Blue Murder album came out in 89. They had this party in um, Beverly Hills. I can't okay. remember the name of the place, but uh, I'm like, okay, this guy's going to be there, you know. But so we get to the party and there's you know, 200, 300 people there, open bar, Geffen's really... That was their big push. You know what? I would say Blue Murder. There's my woulda, shoulda, coulda. But it wasn't a great record. It was a good record, but it wasn't a great record to put them over, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, so Geffen was doing the big push. It was like, you know, they probably spent a lot of money on the party. Uh, but, you know, John was kind of protective. People were protective. Like, John, um, uh, who was the inner guy? Um, Kaladner. Kla- right. I remember Kladner was there with the beard and he kind of looked like a little, like a monk or something. <laughs> it was all white and, you know, and it's like, you couldn't get close to him, you know, it was like, Hey John, what's going on? It, w- it was still kind of a little bit of separation, but it was cool to be in the same room with him though, you know, and hear the record. Cause I haven't heard the record up until that point. That was the other thing for the internet. This was the only way you can hear like an album release. If you went to the, went to the album release party and not every band had an album release party but right. the ones that seemed to matter they would have one or you would get an advanced cassette mm-hmm. and that's i would always chum up with our head buyer because he would get all the advanced cassettes so i was already like on to like a lot of bands before the album actually came out so um that was like my little network of and i was the only hard rock guy at the office so i'd always get all the advanced cassettes on all the new stuff so <laughs> Yeah, I've, I still have some of those. Um, it's funny. I spoke to Phil Rind a few months ago from uh, Sacred Reich, and I told him that, that I had the uh, promo copy of, of Independent on cassette. I still have it. Awesome. Uh, and I have, like, promo VHSs that they, that they would send our way. I was in college radio at that time in the uh, early 90s. And... Um, there were, there were a bunch of things, you know, from Rage Against the Machine to Stone Temple Pilots, you know, all these bands that before anyone knew who they were, they were sending us the promos. And and I still remember being on the phone with someone that I'm sure you know, Kevin Estrada, who at that time was was at Hollywood Records. Yep. And he was talking up Tool at that time. They had just released um, Undertow. They had just released Undertow and they had sent us Undertow and someone else had sent us Opiate because uh, they were taking advantage of the other release to, I guess, reissue it or something along those lines. But he at the time said, these guys are going to blow up. They're blowing up the L.A. scene. You just wait. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I didn't get them yet. And then, you know, once the video started coming out and then once, you know, it's one of these things where they finally just clicked and I went, you know, head first for them, but it was, it was cool back then, you know, having people tell you stuff like that or, or playing rage against the machine for some friends for the first time, because I had that promo cassette and hearing, ah, this will never take off. 
I'm like, this is going to be huge, man. This is, you know, you just wait and see. And I was right. So zoo used to have the record label that had tool on it. They would have their Christmas parties used to go to those. A lot of, I think tool by then was really kind of like the, the really breakout artist on that label. So it gave them a lot of clout. So a lot of people were there that were kind of like, you know, really in the know kind of, uh, uh, you know, agents and managers and kind of a different different echelon of crowd you know you could tell when you walked in the room you know yeah absolutely you mentioned the iomi party before um what what made that one stand out to you oh i'm glad you brought that up because i want to kind of address something that i kind of have addressed in certain ways you know, I I would go to a lot of be invited to a lot of the parties that would happen in, in Los Angeles and whatever releases were coming out. So I want to say I kind of dropped out going in parties to parties, maybe by the mid 90s. I, I kind of stopped going even to showcases. That was the other thing that was happening, too. There would be a new artist and they would do a showcase at the Roxy or the Troubadour or wherever. So I would go periodically, but I wasn't going as much. But getting back to Iomi, Iomi was 2000, I think. Yeah, somewhere around there. I, I went, the label that distributed Divine Records was Priority. And so I knew all those guys over there because they're all the hip hop people too, you know. Right. And Brian Shafton over there, he's like, dude, you got to come to this, man. It's, it's going to be really cool. Iomi, man, Black Sabbath, you know, and he was more a hip hop guy, but he, you know, he was a, he's a white Jewish guy too. You know, he, he gets the rock stuff too, you know? Right. Um, so long story short, the party was really quite amazing. Actually, I would say that was the last fun party I had been to in the music industry. Okay. Not because there was a lot of, of people there. I would say there was maybe only 200 of that maybe less. So it felt exclusive in one sense. Um, But, you know, I had catering and the whole bit, maybe open bar. Um, Staff photographer was there. Stephanie Cabral was taking photos. So she was like the staff photographer. Um, But we roll up and it was actually, and, and it didn't say that on the invitation, but it was actually Sharon Osbourne's office. Oh, wow. So when you walked in there, it was like a big cavernous kind of, I don't want to say a warehouse, but it, it was huge. And every Black Sabbath poster from, you know, 72, album plaque, you know, uh, volume four. I mean, there was every type of Black Sabbath thing you can imagine in this place. Mm-hmm. Donned on all the walls. It was like a museum, I would call it really so okay. that made it really cool just because you were just like in awe of just walking into this place and seeing black sabbath ozzy history basically on the walls now ozzy didn't end up showing up i guess he was supposed to but he stayed at home but the first person I actually ran into when we were walking in was Serge from um system of the down okay nice guy, man really cool they were they were recording toxicity at the time so Okay. He was getting away from the studio and like, hey, I, you know, I'm just popping in to see what's going on, man. We love <laughs> Iomi. And I guess he had done a song on the record. So he yeah. kind of went to show support. 
so he was cool. We talked a lot about philosophy and world politics, and he's he's a very very astute person. I mean, he may come across that way too to people, but he really is well studied. Uh, I was impressed by him. Um, so yeah, so we walk in, and first person I see and I meet is Bill Ward. So I'm talking with Bill Ward, and I'm like, okay, it's like I walk in the door, and I'm already talking to Bill Ward, you know, and it's just crazy, you know. And then I see a lot of my friends that I know that are there too, and and then Dave Grohl shows up with the uh, Taylor Hawkins, so there there they are, they're like hanging out, and and then here's Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins rolls in. I was like, damn, how many people are going to be coming to this? This is crazy. <laughs> it's really crazy of all just these people and there were more people like that coming in but i'm just giving you kind of like the little brief thing and um so what ended up happening though that night was kind of weird so sharon was there and stuff and she's kind of like making sure everything's rolling good and it's very calm atmosphere no no drama whatsoever everything's cool and everything's rolling along so I'm telling a story now. There's kind of candles that are lit all over in different places of this of this office. We'll call it an office, uh, Sharon often Sharon Osborne's office. And I over that summer prior, so the party was like in October or September of that year. So summertime, like July or August, I went to Memphis. They flew us out to Memphis to this to I don't know. It was a big kind of. 30th an- or 50th anniversary of some company out there. So mm-hmm. uh, we spent like four days there, all paid for. And one of the days I broke off and went to Al Green to see Al Green peach, preach in Memphis, right? And it was really cool. He preached for like two, three hours. So the friends that are, I had there at the, at the Iomi party, I'm telling this story about how I met Al Green after the sermon and stuff, because everybody else was saying, oh, yeah, we went to stunt. A lot of the same people were were there with me, too. And they said, oh, we went to Sun Studios or we went here, we went there. I said, well, I went to see Al Green. Like, whoa, how was that? Cool. So I'm telling this story and I had long hair at the time. And apparently I leaned into this candle and all of a sudden some guy jumps on me and pats my head. And apparently my hair was on fire. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know it at the time. And as soon as that happened, okay, the guy that put out my hair was actually the the kids kind of watcher. He's not their babysitter, but the kids were still kind of like, uh, you know, Jack and, and who's the girl? I can't remember the girl's name. Kelly. There's Kelly. Kelly. Amy. Yeah. They were like 12, 13 at the time. So this guy kind of just watched him and drove him around and kind of was their caretaker more or less. So he was the guy that put out the fire in my hair. Right. And as soon as that happened, Sharon comes up to me and says, and you better not see me. And like, well, I was like, I've heard of this thing from my mind. I wasn't heard or anything. It's just right. kind of funny. Well, at that time she was going through an, uh, like a lawsuit with, with both geezer Butler and Billy Corgan. <laughs> oh, okay. So, right. She may have had that in her mind, you know, like not another lawsuit. Oh, no. But (laughs) that was I wasn't going to sue. I mean, I wish I would have said then, like, well, just give me passes for the next Ozfest. That that would would be fine. You know, I didn't think, you know, (laughs) so. uh, So eventually we got to meet Iomi. And and when Iomi comes in, it's like, whoa, man, it's kind (laughs) of like 
I remember meeting Jimmy Page. I met Jimmy Page in 2002, I think. Two, no, 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 no. 2003. He did a book signing. And that was a trip. Mm-hmm. Different, different place, different time. But it's kind of like when Naomi comes in, he's like, whoa, that's fucking Naomi, man. And you just feel like a kind of a different shift in energy and stuff. So they were lining us up for pictures and stuff. And um, I never got my picture back. But somebody had taken a picture of it. I guess the people from the record company, they had some photos. So I, I eventually got that photo. But I guess I talked to Stephanie Cabral, who was the staff photographer at that event. I said, do you think I would ever get that photo back? And I guess Sharon wanted all the photos from that night. And then she would clear them and then release them back to the record company for the record company to send back out to to us but we never got them so it's kind of a bummer because I, I i i would want to see the picture that stephanie took of me and iomi you know but i got my other photo so that's fine but i mean meeting iomi like you know i mean eddie van halen wasn't really accessible mm-hmm. and even iomi is not accessible either they're not these are guys that don't go to the NAMM show. They're, they're right. just people you don't see. They, they're reclusive, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was really like, I really realized that that was really special, super special. So I say that that particular party was like the last of the last great parties in hard rock that I went to in Los Angeles mm-hmm. ever, <laughs> ever. And it kind of like threw me back to maybe if I would have grew up in the seventies and I was in the music industry, it kind of felt like that could have been during that time too, you know? Yeah. What it would have been like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I Uh, have another party too. I can talk about it. Yeah, yeah, sure. That was kind of in the same realm, but even on a bigger scale, what could have been in the seventies party over the top party but it was in the 90s. It was 90, actually. No, 91. So this was when Queen was releasing their catalog through Hollywood, Mm -hmm. and they were releasing the new record record Innuendo. Right. They had this big, huge party in Long Beach. Long Beach. Oh. uh, The the Queen Mary, right? Queen Mary, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Everybody in the industry, there must have been some sort of industry conference, like a radio conference or something, something I wasn't really privy to. Mm -hmm. But in general, all the people in L.A. that were industry were invited. I mean, the boat could handle a huge amount of people. The ballroom was huge and the areas where they had it was pretty widespread. So they -hmm. could easily have maybe even up to. I want to say maybe 1,500 or 2,000 people. I could be wrong. There was a lot of people there, though. Okay. And it was an exclusive party. So I went to this thing, and it was quite amazing because they – I don't know how much money they spent, but constant champagne rolling in and out, open <laughs> bar, uh, ice sculptures. They had Freddie Mercury's costumes from different tours in glass cases. They went all out. And by this time, the industry circles knew that Freddie was sick. Mm-hmm. It wasn't public yet, not until right before he passed, which was like right. maybe nine months later, mm-hmm. 10 months like that. So it was like, okay, Roger's here and Brian is here. 
and they're kind of they're kind of a little bit tucked away not so much accessible but they were around you know they were talking to people and doing interviews with people and stuff but it was definitely a a-list party i mean you had like yeah like guys like weird al yankovic there i mean it was just kind of a, everybody that was this was really the place to be but that was a really cool party they had tarot card readers they had guys on stilts it's like the circus atmosphere and it was it was really cool it was a really cool party so that was kind of one of the last kind of parties i would imagine back in the day that happened you know they really right and at the end of it they had a fireworks show on the on the top deck oh wow then done so anyway so those are kind of like i don't know hopefully it gives people a glimpse of what was happening in los angeles and yeah cool yeah you you mentioned that meeting iomi and page was like a big deal was really like being able to meet people as you said that weren't really that accessible at, at that point um any others that you would put on that level that you know you were able to kind of uh you know, be in their presence just for a moment and notice, be like, whoa, the energy that this person's giving off is just on another level. Trying to think. Um, there's always been a lot of cool people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm trying to think. I mean, Lemmy is kind of like one of them, but he was kind of a people's guy. He's always out and about. So it wasn't right. Uh, you know, he saw Lemmy. It was like, oh, there's Lemmy. I mean, that's kind of a big deal, you know? Right. I remember the first actor I met at one of these parties. This was okay. 1988. Um, Warner Brothers had like, um, they were rolling out all their alternative music. And they're, so they were doing kind of a road show. I don't even call it a road show, but they basically cleared out the the whole conference room and had drinks and food. And they would just play all the the new music that was going to be released uh, coming up. So it was cool going to the Warner Brothers building, the old Warner Brothers building. That, that was a museum in and of itself, but they didn't let us go around too much. Oh, okay. Go around the perimeter, right? But <laughs> right. we're like looking at people's offices. God, who's here? And they had like a cool, like, are you experienced Jimi Hendrix lithograph on the wall, you know? And, and that particular building itself the warner brothers building was kind of like a ski chalet it kind of had a ski chalet kind of vibe to it okay so that was actually my first party i went to really so it was kind of cool um and some of the artists were there i didn't know too many because it was kind of an alternative world Mm -hmm. so this guy comes in and the friend i'm with uh he knew him right off the bat and i i'm like yeah that's him uh, Bill Paxton. Okay. Bill Paxton. What a fucking cool dude. That guy was, we talked to him for at least a half hour. Oh, we wow. just talked about like weird science and just being an actor in, in Los Angeles. And the reason why he was there, uh, there was a band called Martini Ranch. It kind of had like a little hit in Los Angeles called Reach. They got okay. some airplay on, on video. But what we came to find out, I don't know if anybody would go back this far, but Dr. Demento, I don't know if you listened to the Dr. Mm-hmm. Demento radio show. 
Yeah. He was kind of a satirist and he played these funny records on the air and stuff. So Bill was telling us he was part of Barnes and Barnes, the song oh. Fish Heads. Fish, oh, wow. Yeah, fish. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's telling us about this and it's like, you're the guy? You're like, yeah, I'm one of the guys I was part of that Fish Heads song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So you're just learning about this, like this really, he was such a cool dude. He was, I was really sad when he passed away because it was just like, he, I, I don't know. I mean, I never really met a lot of movie stars here and there. I mean, fair amount, I guess. But him being the first person I met and seeing his career just go skyrocket after that and then having him pass it was really sad i mean it kind of upset me because i thought here's a guy i met probably one of the coolest people in hollywood that didn't give me a bad impression about actors and actresses and you know ego he didn't have any of that he was just really down to earth he was funny he talked to you he he wanted to stay in the conversation. He it we were nobodies really. We were just asking him questions because we were curious, you know. And he wasn't right. like, hey, look, I gotta talk to these people. No, he wasn't like that at all. So yeah. um so there's one person I think I I would say later on I was really in awe of him. Um Mila Hohovich, I met her early on too. And I wasn't in awe of her meeting her, but again, seeing her career just right. explode after that, I was like, mm, she's got the goods, man. She's got the goods. Yeah. Well, and that, that's someone that, you know, also took a stab at music as well there for a little bit. So. Yeah. That's why I met her. She, they brought her down. Capital brought her down to oh, meet, okay. meet us for like a meet and greet she was really sweet and she was really nice and people like that record apparently i i, I may have heard it once or twice but <laughs> i think they played it there uh while she was there but she was she was actually very nice and very cool and very down to earth and she deserves all the success in her life absolutely you could see it early on she was just kind of this kind of person you could see that she could have success you know in her life you know yeah, I, um, there's I, another person too. If you're talking about music and being in awe of a person, okay. Before he broke out, I would say Axl Rose. Okay. E easily, um, this was like 1986 at the Troubadour, and Guns N' Roses had just got signed. The record was being probably recorded by then, or at least the demos or something was going on by then. But I ran into him at the Troubadour first time. And I was aware of Guns N' Roses because they were kind of being advertised in the local scene and flyers. I got some flyers probably at one stage. I always didn't want to go see them because I thought, ah, these guys are probably pussy rock, you know, or like really kind of like poison. I saw poison early on and I thought that they just disappointed me. It's like, I, so I kind of, bad, bad on my part to really kind of have preconceived notions about these guys and stuff. Um, so Axel Rose introduced a band. Um, I think it was Hans Nadi at the Troubadour. That was his reason to be there. But after he did the introduction or before or something, he was hanging out upstairs. He had his white leather jacket, his boots, a lot of people hanging out around him. They knew something 
was up with this Axl Rose character. And it wasn't just the gutter rock kind of crowd either. Mm-hmm. It was like probably some insider people, you know, that I didn't know about, maybe agents or people of that caliber, you know. But seeing him like, yeah, that guy, there's something about that guy. I don't know what it is, but there's something about him. So I would say Axl Rose was probably the first person I would say that I felt that energy to where, yeah, this guy's going to be something. Something's going on with him, you know? Gotcha. Okay. Um, You're also obviously, I mean, well, the LA scene, I mentioned uh, Kevin Estrada. Obviously, you got to work with uh, Bob Nalbandian later on with the uh, Inside Metal stuff. there's also, I mean, anytime that I post anything Armored Saint related, you're one of the first people to like or or do stuff like that as well. Uh, so you obviously know a lot of, you know, a lot of the same people kind of know each other out mm-hmm. there from back then till till today. Um, with Armored Saint, for example, um, do you know the band at all? Um, or is it just from a fan standpoint or what? You know, where do you stand with them? How far back do you go with them? You want me to tell you my Armored Saint stories? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, like I said, you're you're like one of the only people that's always consistent with all the Armored Saint stuff being that you're out there. I was like, well, he's got to know them. There's got to be some type of a connection there. Okay, so I, I'm a, one of the admins for the Dave Pritchard page. Um, I do a lot of posting on Dave Pritchard a lot. Um, okay. There's like maybe four or five other admins that are on board, but I tend to be the one that posts a lot. And I'll get to why that is one of the reasons, not only because of Dave Pritchard, um, who is an amazing, amazing guitarist and one of the funniest guys you would ever meet in your life. So I'm probably alluding to, yes, I did. I I know those guys, knew those guys. No, no know of them so back in 83 i was going to the troubadour a lot before the whole big explosion of the of the la scene right after motley crew was kind of coming out and before quiet riot mental health came out Mm -hmm. so it was a great time to just go to the clubs and see the up-and-coming bands so the night we went i had been going down and seeing black and blue wasp bitch all, all the bands that have been playing on the Troubadour stage. So we didn't miss it like every other weekend. So I had heard, I, I can't remember if I heard the demo, the Armored Saint. No, I didn't hear the Armored Saint demo yet. But we had seen pictures of them in the local magazine, uh, music magazine, BAM. So we were pretty well aware of, of them because the advertising. And they seemed to get on really cool bills of different mm-hmm. bands. So like, so. I knew that was the band I had to go see, like the next band. So I think it was March 3rd, 1983. Um, they played in Rat. So they got, Armistad got the nine o'clock slot. Rat got the 1030 spot. So we get there and there they are. Armistad fucking kicked ass, man. I'm like, whoa, these are kind of, they sound different from the other bands that we've been seeing. The other bands are heavy. Armored Saint is just as heavy, but kind of had that European kind of vibe going on. Mm-hmm. But kind of these these kids that were these these guys were my age practically, so it made it even cooler. Mm-hmm. Kind of gave it that Def Leppard kind of vibe, I guess. Although they didn't sound like Def Leppard. Um, so yeah, so 
they were cool. So then we just started going and seeing them, you know, uh, amongst all the other bands too. Um, so fast forward a year later, uh, I think we would talk to Joy Vera. He, one advertisement, they Armored Saint advertisement they had, and it had Joey's number. Like for more information about Armored <laughs> Saint, call this number, and it was it was Joey Vera's number. I don't know if he got a deluge of phone calls all the time. I would imagine just putting your number out there must must have happened a lot. So I call. Uh, I don't know. A friend of mine called him, and he talked Joey in. I don't know. Maybe not talked him in. Or maybe it came about that, hey, we're, we rehearse up in Rosemead at, at a rehearsal place. You guys can come on down. I don't know if we invited ourselves or they invited us. <laughs> right. Come on down. So we drove down there. It was like a 40-minute drive from where we're at. And there's about four of us that go. And this is August of 1984, right? Mm-hmm. So John, Dave. No, no, no. Who's there first? Gonzo, Dave, and Joey. They're there first. So we get there. Hey, hey guys. And they know our faces basically because we just go right. to all the shows. So they, they know us. We're like, you know, cool with them at that point, you know, and I have to introduce ourselves all over again. So we go in and John hadn't shown up yet. He was supposed to. So they're playing as a three piece basically for a little bit. Okay. At rehearsal, and I remember one of the tunes they played, and they only played like maybe two or three minutes of it. The the band Fear, mm-hmm. I don't care about you. Yeah, and Joey was singing, which was kind of cool. It was like they're this three piece <laughs> punk rock outfit, you know. And it was kind of cool because we were able to talk to the band. We were kind of a little bit shy still, you know, a little bit. But Dave, especially he he engages he would he would be the type of person that would engage with you immediately whether it be jokes whether it be hey what you into or oh you play guitar oh cool what do you have you know really kind of just bringing you in and dave was like the first person really to do that and he's like oh you play guitar you know phil's not here do you know any songs we can jam i'm like oh wow i'm like at first, I was like, I was a little intimidated. I'm like, well, okay, let's let's try something. And I had played Dave Dave's guitar, and it was really kind of funky. He had this Ibanez V, and he had recently got the neck scalloped, like kind of like Ingve right. with yep. the strap. And it was really awkward to play. He was like, you know, I played it for a little bit, you know, it was it was hard to get. He said, yeah, it's hard to get used to, but actually, really, once you get used to it, it's pretty. It's it, it, it's really feels different if it, you know, he, he preferred to have a scallop neck. So, so I think I played one of his V's that was also scalloped. I think I had two Ibanez V's. So when he said, Hey, let's jam, you know, Phil's not here yet. So, so I played lesson well, but by then John had showed up. So I'm playing lesson well learn with these guys. I'm like, well, this is weird, man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to keep my composure and I'm trying to like, I'm, I'm everything's kind of hitting me all at once. I'm trying to stay with the song. I know the song well, but it's like, I'm playing with Armin Saint now. It's a different deal. Now it's not like practicing in your room or anything, you know? Right. And we, we did, we did good. And it was cool. I got a high five from Dave and Joey and Gonzo and stuff. And so when John comes down, they basically, you know, they're, 
they're playing their whole set, Can You Deliver and uh, uh, March of the Saint. And and we're getting, we're right there. We're just seeing, it's like a mini concert just for like, mm-hmm. just for us four, I guess. And the roadies were there too. I think Donnie, really nice guy, really nice guy. Um, he was kind of helping them get situated with their rehearsal that day and stuff. And like I said, John came and, you know, we chatted with them between songs. We played video games with them. They had a defender in the lobby. So they would like to take breaks and, but it was so hot that day. Like after the first song, um, Gonzo was, he dumped some ice in the sink in the bathroom and he's like, he was his throat was so dry. He's like, give me the ice in the sink. I'm thirsty, you know, and then got him the ice in the sink. He's like, you thank me and stuff. And I'm trying to re- recollect all the things that happened. So they had finished recording March of the Saint. And in between songs, we hung out for maybe about three hours, I guess. It was quite a while, maybe two. So in between songs, they they said, hey, um, we got the new advanced cassette for March is the Saint. I want to play it for you guys. Gonzo had like a beatbox, boombox thing. Right. So he played it for us and he played us a couple songs and he says, well, so what do you think? I said, I mean, I'm, all I could say is like, oh, that's cool, man. You get to hear the new Armored Saint. You know, I, you know, right. sound, that was cool. I'm, I kind of got the impression though, that he really wanted my honest opinion, you know? <laughs> and if we look back at that record, it was very, it's a very clean record, you know? I mean, all the rough edges were kind of rubbed out. <laughs> right, right. You see the band live, it's 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 heavy. It's really heavy, you know? And then hearing the record, it was kind of a little softer, I guess, <laughs> recording-wise, you know? Yeah, John so cool. actually... So yeah, cool, you know? John actually said that to me recently because we had uh, someone in the chat ask him about the producer because the producer had also worked with Kiss, and that's what John said. He said, you know, we expected him to give us like the type of production that he, he gave Kiss on Creatures of the Night and on Lick It Up, which was a lot louder and a lot rawer. And they said that once they got to listen to uh, the first album, they were like, well, it's good, but it kind of doesn't sound like us. And he said exactly what you said, that kind of the, the rougher edges were all like smoothed out. So they felt from the start that it wasn't a real representation of what the band was all about i got that impression in retrospect not so much when it was happening around me because we're just we're happening we're we're hanging out with the band so everything's cool regardless so Mm -hmm. um there was a story though um so the album artwork i guess the guy who did it was in england and there would be only one band member that could go and see the artwork and fly to England to see it. <laughs> so they, they had to draw, draw straws basically. And uh, Dave went, Dave was the one that was got the, the straw. So he went to England and he went to Castle Donington too. Um, Cause it was right around that time. So right. that's an Armored Saint little tidbit. It probably is not <laughs> talked about. But Dave Pritchard was the one. So, I mean, I kind of I'm honored to be, you know, it's a small small community on Dave Pritchard's, uh, you know, the Facebook fan page and stuff. But, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I I wasn't super close to him in in one sense, but we knew each other. So it was cool. I felt like, like I said, he always brings you in, you know, and tries to find some common things. And 
he's a big jokester. He was a big jokester. Uh, that guy's, he was funny. He was a funny guy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's obvious from, you know, when you speak to the members of the band, how much he meant to the band, um, not only from a musical standpoint, but as a person, you know, they always speak so highly of him and, uh, you know, how many times do you have a band where even if someone passes away or whatever, there's always some dirt, there's always something to talk about. Yeah, we love the guy, but this happened or that happened. I've never heard anyone say a bad thing about Dave and you hear like members of other bands and whatnot talk about him. You hear like members of Metallica or whatever talk about Dave and it's always good stuff, you know, where again, they're other bands, other situations where they're like, you know, Hey, you know, whatever, God, God rest his soul, but he was a dick, you know, on this occasion or whatever, you know, there's always that type of stuff. So I, I get the sensation, the, the feeling that Dave was loved by everyone. Yeah, definitely. Was, I don't think the guy had an enemy at all. He, he just loved life. I think, you know, I, I get a little spiritual here in one sense, but, uh, the lifespan he had and the amount of time he was on planet earth, he packed it in, he mm. packed in life in that short amount of time. And maybe somewhere destiny knew that he would only be here for a short amount of time. So they put this guy on the planet to fucking rock our asses off, tell <laughs> some funny jokes, have some camaraderie with his brothers and people mm -hmm. in metal. And then it was time for him to go. He did all his work, you know, and because right. we're talking about him, what, 35 years later or however many long it's been, we're still talking about him. So yeah. he left a big impression just in our small community. But people who knew of him, I mean, I'm sure the Metallica guys can vouch for him, too. You know, he was, he yeah. was the party, you know. Absolutely. Years later, like I mentioned initially, how we got to meet was through the Inside Metal series that you had worked on, which I absolutely love because I like how it was put together in that no one was the focal piece. You know, where you see other documentaries where the host has to, like, take over and show their persona and this and that, where I think with that series, whether... You like the quality or not? I know some people have complained about it being lo-fi or whatever, but I think that kind of adds to everything. I think it is great for a storytelling piece and letting the people that were actually there tell those stories as opposed to, again, having a host sit there with the mics, you know, explaining all this stuff. Um, how much of, of, I don't want to say labor of love, but how difficult was it to kind of piece everything together, to get everyone involved, to make sure that that story came out and that it was that, that it came out in a non-filtered way that, you know, gave everyone like an appreciation for, for what took place outside of, you know, outside of what MTV or what anyone else would, would tell years later. Cause obviously MTV or any other outlets like that focused on Guns N' Roses, Poison, Motley Crue, Quiet Riot, you know, it was, five or six bands, but obviously there was a, a wealth of other things that took place too. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, if you look at jazz, um, people can maybe start at Coltrane or Charlie Parker, but obviously there's people before that, you know, and it right. was even people before Louis Armstrong, you know, that <laughs> probably should get more 
notoriety for starting the genre, I should, I should say. So sure. this is kind of like the same thing in that sense, because, yeah, like you said, Poison, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue to a certain degree. Um, these are the bands that people are going to focus in on. And Van Halen is Van Halen. That's a different that's right. a different thing altogether, you know. But <laughs> we wanted to go a little bit back at least. And Van Halen's a part of that because they were a local band. And really just get tell the story on the ground of the people that were there. So it was actually the people who told the story that made it possible to really put put create a better picture of what was going on like a true picture i guess or as true as we felt the other thing too that we all knew bob bob knew this and i knew this that you couldn't do something like this 10 years from now mm -hmm. by this time it would be five years from now because people's memory would really this was like right. the best time to get it you know so we let everybody tell their story or the story and then we just pieced everything together in kind of a timeline mm -hmm. of sorts or in little little stories within stories right and sometimes you could find one person tells one part of the story and then the other person tells the other part of the story kind of through by proxy you know by, by sure no. So we'd always just try to weave as much of that together to make it concise. Mm -hmm. And I think in the end, it seemed to be more like um, like a high school reunion of these guys and they're telling their stories. That's kind of the best way to put it, mm -hmm. as opposed to a cookie cutter MTV style kind of story presentation, which we didn't want to do either. That didn't that didn't do it justice because we knew there were bands that just weren't going to be recognized anymore but mm -hmm. we're really part of the scene in a big way you know like ron keel or or armor saint guys or uh black and blue guys or legs diamond i mean you can go on and on about the bands that were playing on a frequent basis that aren't really recognized as time goes on you know they just people mm -hmm. go to the motley crew and the quiet riot and that's the end of the story you know so we wanted to make sure that got represented because for kids who were born in the 90s and the 2000s, it's all kind of come back around again. I think maybe with Motley Crue's The Dirt, it's kind of like a right. renaissance again and kids are getting into it. And it's good that there's something like that that they can see. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't have all the shine and the luster as a, like a full-blown Hollywood documentary presentation, but the the meat and, and guts of it, it it's got everything yeah i recollect from the scene and being around it it's got everything if you didn't live through it this is like the best way to kind of live vicariously through it as watching the the, the series especially la i mean there's been uh, the san francisco ones which i was born in the bay area but i didn't really partake in that so bob and i we grew up in that time, in that scene, we were going to the same shows uh, at that time. So we saw a lot of the same things and the same people. That's where we went after Chris Holmes and Stephen Percy and, you know, and these people um, to really capture their, their, their stories and put it on, um, put it on video. And it took a lot of work though. There was, uh, I feel like maybe 65 interviews it was really a lot to piece together. And I basically, 
I was the one that pieced it together. Um, I think Bob kind of had a framework mm -hmm. of different how he wanted each one to flow. So I managed to sort out all the scenes and put them in a kind of a timeline so they would flow in a decent way to at least tell the story to where it wouldn't be too far out for people to kind of lose focus, you know? So. Yeah. And, and how many hours are there? I mean, that's 65 interviews and you know, how many people are you talking to for an hour or more, you know, because each volume was what, like two hours and something. And then with the extra behind the scenes stuff, it was all, you know, yeah, they're broken down into two. There's three volumes, and they're broken into two parts, so like mm -hmm. six at 90 apiece. Um, you know, I'd say we use about everything, though. So it's not like um, it's not like too much stuff was on the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. um, but you got to remember too that all the stuff in between, it's the ams and the uhs and camera adjustment. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. You know, so. I'll safely say that it's it's got everything in there that <laughs> no cutting room floor stuff. But some interviews were 15 minutes and some interviews were like an hour and a half, you know. So it's right. like, and some people, you know, they just like to talk. So it's a BS session. <laughs> so right. you know, like I have to listen to all of this and get that that kernel of information after about 15 minutes, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. But, um, there were some cool people that I wouldn't have thought of, but they were in there, but they should be in there. Like Stephen Craig, the first manager for, for Slayer. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, their first merch guy. He's very interesting. Can't remember his name. Craig, Craig, I think. Um, he told a lot of stories too. Um, yeah, just different people. Um, you know, Rocky George was cool. Uh, I don't know. It was always kind of somebody different every time we filmed. So, and every location we went to, we tried to, most of it, you could kind of tell it's in one location. That's Joe Floyd, the guitarist for warrior. That's his back terrace area. Seemed to be the best place. Right. He's also a, pro a producer of this. So a lot of the interviews were done at his place. So, um, but we went remotely, like we went to the Metallica headquarters that one time and, different places like that the gibson showroom we went to um we went to a recording studio for mike and Nez somewhere in north hollywood really nice studio uh so yeah try to try to not make it look too uh one and the same <laughs> yeah, yeah if you have any questions about it i'm happy to answer i think that's how people know me because of that series and obviously we've gone into other stuff too but you know if there's any other things you'd like to ask me in particular about that i'd be happy to answer because i can't remember all of it but I, there's a lot i can remember about it yeah it's funny when i mentioned that uh that you were going to be on the show someone says to me um uh, mike jones he's one of my patrons actually he says uh oh the guy from inside metal i'm like the one and only <laughs> so People, people do know who you are, at least people that listen to, uh, to my show. Um, yeah, I, I, again, I think it's cool that the story kind of, you know, is the focal piece of everything. You mentioned Armored Satan, Def Leppard before. It was interesting for me to hear Joey say, hey, you know, we were all listening to early Def Leppard and we wanted to kind of do that our own way. So as you're saying it, I'm like, oh, wow, he did 
kind of allude to that in the documentary. So, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine having to piece everything together though. That, that has to be a lot, a lot of work because like you're saying, you're, you're sifting through all the various interviews and pulling out pieces that make sense or that will, you know, fit the, the, the story that you're trying to tell. Um, I, I get recording in one location because obviously not only because the aesthetics, but you're also kind of guaranteed, you know, cert, certain, you know, certain sound quality as well. So you don't have to work that as much uh, or even, you know, lighting in some instance, if, if that was an open area that had a lot of natural sunlight, well, you're not having to drag around a lot of different, you know, uh, lighting rigs or anything to make sure that the, the people are, are well lit. Um, was there anything that you feel um, that you learned from working on, on that series, anything that you've been able to apply elsewhere after? Uh, well, a couple things. Um, you know, I was such a fan of heavy music and I always wanted to get all the releases, but I couldn't afford it. it was right. Impossible. So I had to go down to Aaron's to get all the promos that the record companies would sell to them and then <laughs> be able to buy a, a, a 9.98 LP. I could buy it for two bucks. Okay, cool. Right. Like, more of that and then i learned at the record distributor i knew all the releases so i didn't feel left out i always <laughs> felt like i was missing out growing up like did i miss a new release or i missed this band so getting back to the documentary it was like i felt like every stone was turned over with every person that needed to be in there with the exception of van halen although we did try to get michael anthony but it didn't come together that um uh, but I think everybody, um, somebody from Motley Crue would have been good, obviously, but that's Motley right. Crue. But everybody else is well represented. Every band is well represented. I don't think there's any band that we left out of the mix that should have been there. So I was happy to know. I knew a lot about the L.A. scene, but I really knew about the L.A. scene after it was all said and done. So I felt like. I didn't miss out on anything. I, I got the whole experience. I was there. I lived it. And then I got to hear it through the other people, all the missing pieces sure. that I was missing. So I've, I feel like I experienced the whole LA scene, LA scene in the 80s to the fullest amount. Mm -hmm. I got the whole thing. There's no missing parts at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like I can die a happy man that I like, yep. I, I got to experience that and working with this film, you really captured it in that sense. So sure. um, that's the main thing I kind of walk away from and, and just starting as a kind of a, a newbie really at it. We didn't really, um, didn't have any experience with this sort of thing, not on that level. So I think just getting it under our belt and being able to do it, um, it, it's been good. You know, my battery cable's running out of um, my battery, but I'm going to go get the, the charger here. Okay. I'm trying to do it nonchalantly, but that's not going to be too successful. Um, yeah, so those are the two things um, that I definitely walked away from. And, you know, it was really cool, too. Bob put the, like, kind of like a screening together for each and every one 
So right. we were always kind of inviting, having all these people who were in the movie being invited to the screenings. And then we kind of do like a Q&A afterwards. So there would be guys. Oh, there's the guys from Love the Wolf here. There's the guys, um, you know, everybody that want, uh, I don't know, uh, the guy from Bullet Boys, I think he was there. All kinds of different people would show. Let's see, do we lose him? Or is this my connection? Let's see, can you let me know in the chat if you guys can can still hear me or see me out there? Looks like Carl has frozen. Let's see, yeah. Oh, he's back. Can you see me? Oh, okay. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, not so much as like I was like done with it i was just happy it was over <laughs> it's a lot of work and it was i'd say it was like four years of just labor intensive work from the interviews all the way to the cutting and editing and yeah it was a lot of work so you guys interviewed everyone initially and then worked on all the parts or oh you did okay gotcha yeah because um wow <laughs> that is that that is a ridiculous amount of work. I know the executive producer is trying to tell us, you know, you guys should stop with the interviews because it's going to be a lot of work doing and putting all this stuff together. And he was right. Right. But it seemed like, oh, uh, the Strapper guys are in town. They want to do an interview. It's like it seemed to be like more and more people. We would approach this thing and they wanted to be a part of it. So like the interviews kept on coming. Oh, Jay Reynolds wants wants to talk for Malice, and he'd be good for the thrash and and the and the the scene explodes portion. You know, it's mm-hmm. trying to get as many stories together, and I think it was good in the end. You know, I mean, like I said, we didn't leave any stone unturned. Yeah, I mean, if I want to see Jay Reynolds in a documentary about L.A., sure, fucking Malice kicked ass. You know, they were yeah. They were a cool band or Jack Russell before Jack, before great white became like those early demos. And that first record is cool, man. Mm-hmm. They were really heavy back then, at least at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, I've had people on here saying that they preferred Dante Fox, the great white. So <laughs> I would be in agreement. I would be in agreement, especially when you have Tony Richards on drums, Don Costa bass, Mark, Kendall before he got too bluesy. I mean, they were heavy. Yeah. Yeah. That first album I used to, uh, before I moved to Europe, um, I had a boss that had that album and we would listen to it all the time. I mean, I, I still think it's got a lot of good stuff on it. Yeah. There used to be a local music show on the radio station, KLOS at midnight on Sundays they would play all the local bands. And of course you can't hear all the new wave bands and all the other pop bands and stuff, but yeah. it's, you always have to wait at midnight to see what the lineup was. Hey, this is KLOS local music show. And tonight we got Armin Saint, we got great white. And then they mentioned some other bands. So then you'd be able to hear the demos like, yeah. or anything. And it was like, so I always had the tape recorder on tap, you know? Right. And, tape record all that stuff and it was great stuff i mean those demos probably sound better than some of the recorded material that they put out you know Uh, again that's something that uh 
that John Bush mentioned in the last interview saying how there's been stuff that they've released throughout the years where he's always felt that the original demo kind of captured the energy of the songs better than what ended up on the albums. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I would yeah. agree. Um, what would you consider some of your favorite shows uh, seeing them in LA? Um, I always wanted to see, I was five years born too late to see Van Halen at the Starwood. Okay. That if I would have been in the right place at the right time, I would have been there for sure. Even see Randy Rose with Quiet Riot. <clears throat> but unfortunately I missed that. And then when Y&T Earthshaker came out and I knew they were playing in LA, but I was still too young. They're from the Bay area, but they play in LA a lot, but it's still too young to go to the clubs, you know? So by the time, um, Oh, I should actually preface this first too. where I live and where I grew up is a place called Redlands, California. And there used to be a place here like 10 minutes away, no, 10, 15 minutes called the swing auditorium. And they, it, it was a kind of a 5,000 seat auditorium. They had a floor and then they had like bleachers up above, but it was a very infamous place where people played touring bands, I should say. So back in the day, Black Sabbath played there, Zeppelin, Grateful Dead, the Stones. I mean, it was a kind of a, big deal so by the time i started going to concerts was 1980 so my first concert was back in black i didn't see that at the at the swing though they played outdoors at the speedway right by there but my first show was seeing uh richie blackmore's uh rainbow was with Lynn turner by this time but richie blackmore was my hero you know so i was really glad to see blackmore uh at that time it was pretty awesome in this infamous place that was just mm-hmm. awesome and then the next show i went to was um judas priest point of entry okay my ears rang for almost three days straight and it was <laughs> it was it was a fucking awesome show um so i'm waiting in line we wait in line they had like a chain link fence there and they had the little box office there but we're all us kids already have our tickets and stuff so we're just waiting in line and stuff and the venue is in the fairgrounds it's a big kind of fairgrounds but there's no fair going on there's once a year they have a fair there but so one of the buildings is the swing auditorium right and i see this kid in line and we were we were starting to get into the new wave of british heavy metal by this time so like 1980 81 so we know all the bands and we see this kid with a jacket and he's got all the european bands on patches on it like God, who is this kid? I'm just thinking to myself. And all Angel Witch, Rush, Maiden, every patch you can think of. It's on this kid's jacket. And he's a little guy. Not more than maybe 95 pounds. Little blonde guy, maybe 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. Right. So I, as years go by, and I remember he was talking to people about he seemed like a weird European kid, you know, I'm like, what's this kid doing here? (laughs) So as years going by, it was, um, I think Ron McGovern, did an interview, the bass player from Metallica. Mm -hmm. And I guess he was talking about that. He met Lars at that show, the Jewish show. So that was Lars. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's my life. There's always been weird situations where there've been like musicians or I come into contact with just different people out and about. I, I go to the right. airport and bump into somebody that's an actor or a musician or something. I remember the guys in Avenged Sevenfold. I was dropping off my wife at the LAX airport. She was uh-huh. going to Germany with my son. And then I see this guy get out of his car. His girlfriend's dropping him off. He has a good, two guitar cases that have an A7X on it. Right. Like, Is that the guy from Avenged Sevenfold? <laughs> hey, what's your name? Oh, Brian. Oh, I'm a guitarist in Avenged Sevenfold. Have you heard of us? Yeah, cool. Happens all the time. I don't know why, but it just happens. So. Anyway, I really veered off into some other direction here. So what was our original question? I'm sorry. No, that's cool. No, I was asking what some of the more memorable shows were that, that you had been to. And um, it's funny because as you're mentioning this, again, Brad, who grew up in the L.A. area, mentions that he got to see Rainbow at the Swing with Dio. And, uh. and he's mentioning that uh, he was at the Judas Priest show and he thinks that 38 Special warmed up. Uh, Savoy Brown did, but 38 Special, I think they played next year. No, 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 no. I take that back. I take that back. They played later that summer, I believe. That's what happened. Because I did see them up in the Bay Area at the day on the green. That's okay. with UFO, Ronnie Montrose, Ario Speedwagon, some others. Oh, that was another memorable show. Seeing Randy Rhodes at Day on the Green. And I actually met Ozzy a couple of days before that. He did an in-store for the Blizzard of Oz in the the town I was staying at with my dad, who I, first six years of my life, I grew up in Fremont. And Ozzy did an in-store at the record factory right there a couple of days before. But getting back to the concert, uh, seeing Randy Rhodes in front of this large stadium of people, maybe it's 60,000 people, it fills up. It was around right. 10 in the morning. That was pretty, that was amazing. That was amazing. Uh, and I had seen Van Halen at the forum like a week prior to that. So it was like, it was a guitar rama, you know, I've seen Blackmore, I'm seeing KK and Glenn Tipton. And now I'm seeing Eddie and now I'm seeing Randy Rhodes. It's like, and like my brain's just getting fried here, you know, all these right. bar gods, you know? Yep. So those were some, I mean, Van Halen at the forum, fair warning tour first night at the forum. Fucking amazing. That, I mean, I never saw Van Halen after that, but that was that was a fun show. Definitely one of my top favorites, I think. And seeing ACDC, too. That was my first real concert back in black. I was disappointed I couldn't see Bond. I wanted to see Bond when he died. I was very disappointed. I was disappointed when Jason Bond, I mean, John Bonham died. I was just, I was going to see Zeppelin, but that just right. didn't. Uh, some other memorable shows. Oh, uh, Metallica opening for Ozzy at Long Beach Arena. I think yeah. I've told the story before. That 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 was a really good show. We had backstage passes from Metallica though at that show, um, and I saw Cliff uh, walk out of the dressing room when we were waiting for the band to come out, which they never did. But Cliff did. He was going back to the hotel, and it was, it was like he died four months later after that. So I always kind of look back on that experience of just seeing him walk out of the dressing room and like seeing him in the flesh, you know, and, and then mm-hmm. he's gone, you know, it's like, it was really, it was really, I still think about it often, you know, and 
So yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. Um, just having that moment in, in life, you know? Yeah. One of my listeners lives close to the town where he passed away. And every year when uh, it's the memorial of, of his passing, he always posts pictures of the statue that they have in town of, uh, of cliff. So, so that's interesting. We, we have Randy Rhodes nearby too, here in San Bernardino. That's not too far from us. The big memorial and everybody comes right, here. Right. His birthday. I've yet to go out there. I've been by the cemetery millions of times. I don't like cemeteries. I don't like going to them. And, you know, right. one day I will. I probably should. <laughs> <laughs> What's um, a memorable club show that you got to see in L.A., say, during the 80s at some point? I mean, I can only draw upon, there was that period before um, the whole heavy metal thing exploded to the masses. Okay. In that 1983. So I think I said that I was going down to LA beginning of 1983, mm -hmm. every other weekend. So one weekend I go see Black and Blue. Now, Black and Blue was actually much heavier than the recorded output. Just imagine like the first record louder and heavier they were actually a kind of a poppy heavy band but more on the heavy side so we go see them every other weekend armored saint but the troubadour was like the place to go to see a show after mm -hmm. the starwood club the starwood closed all the kind of heavy bands migrated to the troubadour so every weekend it was like somebody so i think about the third or fourth time i go to the troubadour I'm like okay let's go see wasp and I'd already seen the kind of, they had like the little marquee upcoming shows and they actually had the poster for Wasp. Um, and they had all the pictures of the guys and like, wow, these guys look pretty cool, man. We got to go see this, man. And we didn't know what to expect. So we go see Wasp and it's like, they have the, 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 the rack up there with the woman that came out later that's just, bare-breasted <laughs> that blackie hits her over the head it's covered with a black tarp though but it's this big wrap and then the wasp logo that goes up in flames and we were just like we had never seen anything like that in this small club this is a small club maybe 400 people right and for them to pull off the kind of arena show in the small place and they were loud as hell too they were loud and then seeing Chris Holmes' antics on stage. And I love Tony Richards. I thought he was a cool drummer. And Randy Piper, Blackie, talking in between songs and throwing out. You know, when people talk about Motley Crue, mm -hmm. like those early L.A. shows, like I think Kevin Estrada even talked about it, that every show was different. Mm -hmm. It was cool in its own right. That's what Wasp was before they even got a record contract. It was like their their shows were like really it was really over the top. And as a 17-year-old kid not even knowing what to expect, it was it was mind-blowing really and and I mean I saw some weird things too. Blackie had like this I hope I don't get too descriptive to turn people off, but it was just weird. Uh, they had these weird outfits, at like these leather and these leather strings that tied everything up and 
it was weird. Blackie had like this kind of like where his ball sack came out. Like he's covering his base is covering everything up, right? Right. And then you like, catch a glimpse of his ball sack, and it was like, ugh, it was kind of d- disgusting. But then it kind of fit because they were kind of like, like cavemen or something. I don't right. know how to describe it. So I got everything. I got to see TNA that night. I got to see Blackie's ball sack. I got to see fire. I got to see blood. I got to see raw meat. I got to see crazy Chris Holmes. <laughs> I mean, it had everything. Right. It, and I think even the Slayer guys, I think Carrie was there that night too, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I've heard in interviews that somewhere down the line, you know. So, like, everybody was going to see Wash. They were like the thing to go check out after Motley Crue had already mm-hmm. done their thing, you know. It was Wash, really. So, so that was, I mean, I wouldn't say that was my best show, but as far as theatrics, sure. that was definitely. And the Troubadour, we love going to the Troubadour. It was just so much fun. And the first time we went to the Troubadour, through the VIP section, kind of up stage level. If you were facing the stage, they would be stage right. And they would have all the VIP. There's like two different tables. So VIPs would get there and be able to see the show kind of parallel to the stage and stuff or level to the stage. So the first night we go to the Troubadour, Dio walks in. Into the VIP, and he's right there. Fucking Neo's right there. Right, Wendy, and I think the pre-deal band. So like Vivian and Jimmy Bain, and maybe Vinny, and they're probably recording that first record. Um, so uh, that was kind of like my first rock star kind of sighting, I guess. You know, right. So anyway, the Troubadour was like the fun place club-wise. Uh, for me as a 17-year-old kid. There are plenty of other places after, but those are the ones that are really fresh in my mind. Awesome. Club experience. Sure, sure there's some others, but I can't think of them right now. Yeah. Well, that's that's cool. I mean, obviously, those two stories are great, you know, between Wasp and, and seeing Dio at, at that point in time. The closest I ever came to that was actually um, On My Honeymoon. We got to see Ace Freely play at the Viper Room. Uh, yeah, this is uh, back in 09. And um, and right next to us at the, the two tables that they had there, one of them had uh, Slash and uh, George Lopez. So they were there watching the show the entire time. And then Slash came up and played Cold Gin with, uh, with Ace. So that was uh, pretty cool. You knew something was going to. Something was a brewing. Yeah. She's there, you know. I, I bumped into Slash one time coming out of the... We used to stay at, I had a friend that used to come up to L.A. and stay at the Le Mondrian. And I guess this is the time when Slash was homeless. I mean, he didn't... Have, so he's pretty much lived at Le Mondrian for a while. So I see him often come out of there. That was a place, too, in the 90s. Le, Le Mondrian off of the Sunset Boulevard. I would see all kinds of different people. Chris Rock... Snoop, Dennis Miller, all these people were just there and it was just mm-hmm. it was it was pretty trippy to see all these people in the in the public limelight and mingling around. You'd be mingling around these people. So <laughs> fun cool. stuff. Absolutely. Cool well, stories. Viper Room was a pretty pretty cool place. There's a lot of cool shows there. Yeah. Well that was um the only time I've ever been to LA, I remember seeing on Twitter right before when we were planning our honeymoon, 
A limited show, 200 tickets, $11 a piece. And I went and I bought two tickets as soon as my wife got home. I said, ah, we're going to a special concert on our honeymoon here. So uh, it, was, it was well worth it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's a lot more stories. I don't want to bog the whole thing down. And But I appreciate you having me on. It's been really yeah. fun. And, um, you know. I really enjoy telling my stories. I always kind of think I should write a book, but um, I never get around to it. I've written some stuff, but I've told a lot here though. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I appreciate you spending all this time. I've had you on for, for a good solid 90 minutes here. Um, and sorry uh, for the technical difficulties I was having, but we got it situated. So I apologize. Yeah, we, we got it all worked out. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate your time. And if you ever want to come back and tell more stories, I'd be more than happy to have you back on. Sounds fun. I got a lot more. We didn't cover the nineties or some other things that happened that I think I scratched the surface. So yeah, anytime you cool. want to have, have me back, it's cool. Awesome. I'll, I'll be in touch. All right, man. Thank All you right. for your time, Carl. Thanks, Vic. Talk All to right, you later. Take it easy. Bye-bye now. Bye. There you go, Mr. Carl Alvarez, uh, someone I've known again since the Inside Metal uh, series came out and uh, someone who I've always wanted to have on the show again to, you know, just kind of talk about some of his stories and some of the things that uh, that he's done over the years. Always see all these fantastic pictures that he posts on social media, and it's always beyond cool to see all of that stuff. and. Obviously, you guys in the chat have been great. You guys seem to have enjoyed all of his stories as well. Uh, thanks, Rob, for still hanging out here. You obviously have enjoyed the interview. Uh, Brad, great to see you chime in there. Um, so, yeah, so you, you determined that uh, 38 Special was actually with Rush and not Priest. So there you go. Um, Brad, one day we, we have to talk about, um, pre-shows cause you seem to have gone to quite a few over the years. So, and apparently you don't share the same, uh, opinion as, <laughs> as Carrie King does with that point of entry show. Cause he's always talked about not digging that album for whatever reason. But anyway, thank you guys for hanging out with me tonight for two hours. It's been great. As I usually say, I appreciate your time. Uh, there are many things that you guys can do on a Friday and you choose to spend this time with me. Uh, for those of you that are listening to the replay or watching the replay, uh, thanks guys for checking the show out. I appreciate it. I appreciate the support. And uh, that is it. We will wrap the show up here and I will be back next Friday. And we'll be back with some more stories, another interview or whatever comes up. So thanks again, guys, for being here. And we'll see you next time right here on the Signals from Mars live stream brought to you by the Mars Attacks podcast and VMRIT.com. See you. Thank you for listening to the Mars Attacks podcast. This concludes our show. 